My name is Jason Shives, and for those of you that don't know who I am, I'm a medical student at Loma Linda University. And today I'm going to be giving my testimony. And I'm giving my testimony not because I'm, I feel like I want to show off anything. I just, I just want to praise the Lord because he has transformed my life. Amen. And there's power in people's testimonies because it, it shows people that, hey, if God can do it in that person's life, then God can do it in my life too. Um, before we get started, I'd like to, oh, actually, I'm going to ask, what shall we do before we get started? Let's have a word of prayer. Star heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Sabbath day. Thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to come aside from the world, Lord, to cast our cares upon you. I thank you, Lord, for allowing us to meet in this, this, this mountain church, Lord, this place. I thank you, Lord, for the people here that have opened their church to us, that we might be able to fellowship with them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit to be here. I pray, Lord, that the things that are, are mentioned today, Lord, would not be my words, Lord, but be, would, be your, would be your words. I pray, Lord, you'd anoint my lips like you did to Isaiah, Lord. I pray, Lord, that I would not hold back something that you'd want said, Lord, and I pray, Lord, I wouldn't say something that you would not want said as well. I pray, Lord, that we would put the distractions of the world aside as we open up our ears, open up our minds, and open our hearts to you. I pray, Lord, that the message of the Bible would be true, the message of the Bible would be clear, sharp, and, and I pray, Lord, that you would you change our lives through the word. I, I claim the promise that where two or three are gathered, Lord, you are here in the midst. So I pray, Lord, that you'd be here. Send your spirit. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. For those of you who have your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. And for those that don't, go ahead and um, if you see somebody, be, you know, it's, it's nice, it's, it's good to be nice as Christians. Let's share our Bibles. And um, Revelation chapter 12. I'll be reading, I'll be reading from the, the King James Version. Revelation chapter 12, um, verse 11. This is speaking of this, this end time people, this 144,000. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. How did they overcome? They, overcome, they overcame by the word of their testimony. You know, sometimes, I have to be honest, sometimes we, we hear how somebody's giving their testimony, and I was like, ah. You know, it's almost like sometimes it's like communion. You know, don't, should I go to church or not? But um, right here it's talking about these people that overcame, and they overcame by, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So there's import, it's very important. So I want to ask you today, how important is our testimony? Do you have a testimony that you would be willing to share? Has God done something in your life? That you just you're so happy that he's done it in your life that you you just can't keep quiet about it. Our testimonies are what declare to the world that we serve the Creator of this universe, and that He lives within our lives, and that we wish to serve Him more than it than we wish to live. That last verse says they love their lives not even to the death. My testimony is a story of how godly parents persistently prayed, and even though their son was as far away. Well, pretty far away from God, that 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 rebellious son can be preaching in front of you today. And so, basically, if you if you leave this place, I, lo- I love the emphasis that this church put on prayer. If you leave this place without anything else, please just remember, God answers prayers. 
and I'm a testament to that, and that's my testimony. But we can't pray and go on. We have to hear a little more from the Word, right? So I'll go ahead and elaborate on that one point. For the sake of for the sake of organization, I divided my testimony into four different time periods. Just so I'm a medical student, I like to keep things organized, got to memorize a lot of things. So for me, it's easier this way. So I hope you guys don't mind. The, the, the four time periods of my life are not knowing Christ and finding Christ. Sliding away from God's cross. Revival and then reformation. So I want to start off with finding Christ. And I'll try to I'll try to stay as close to the word as possible, but you have to give me some leeway because I'm telling my story and it's not in the Bible. Okay. So finding Christ. Finding Christ. I didn't grow up a Christian. In fact, before I was baptized at the age of 14, I can only remember one time that my whole family was in church together. One time. I believed in God, and in fact, I believed in the supernatural being up there. But the thing, because when I remember when I was 12 years old, my grandfather died, and he was, the, he was basically God to me. And I remember praying to him at night, um, talking to him. He'd, you know, it, it calmed me. It allowed me to be able to fall asleep. Now I know now that my grandfather is sleeping, but to me then, it was just, it was just, it was relevant to me that there is something beyond this life here, and there is somebody listening. My family, my dad. I needed to talk about my testimony. I need to tell you about my family a little bit. My dad was a Marine. He was in the United States Marine Corps, and worked long hours to support his family. He believed in a God, but saw Christians as weak people that were dependent, on, were too dependent on other people and couldn't take care of themselves. He had high morals for himself and his family and believed in being a good citizen of his country. My mother was kind of on the opposite spectrum. She was raised in the Philippines and was actually brought up as a Seventh-day Adventist. When she went away to the big city at the age of 15 to find work, she left her family and she left her beliefs behind. During my childhood, my mom loved to smoke, my mom was a gambler, my mom was decked out in jewelry, she stayed out late at night, she got, she used to go out drinking with her friends, she ate, I mean only, only in this setting could I say this and there would be shock, he, she ate oysters, pork, and every unclean animal that she could get her hands on. And the thing is, you got to remember, she grew up a, a very strong Seventh-day Adventist. So for me, growing up, I didn't know those things were bad. I didn't know those things were wrong. I didn't know the Bible talked about those things. But my mom chose to, to, leave, to leave her beliefs. She never went to church when I was growing up. She never talked about God and was extremely superstitious. In fact, I remember many times, and my sister Jennifer sitting in the front row, many times when right before she'd go off to bingo, she'd, she'd have us come outside the house. We'd sit down. We're, there's five kids. We'd line us up, and she'd bring this little Buddha statue, and she'd have us rub the belly of the Buddha statue, and then she would, she would have good luck, and that would cause her to win bingo that night. So that's basically what religion was to me growing up. So I, I, I think it's important for you to know where I came from. All during my childhood, she never mentioned her Adventist upbringing. Because of her poor past, most people in the Philippines aren't rich. Her life revolved around pride, money, and achievements. I have two younger brothers and two older sisters. And my sisters were the ones that instilled the knowledge of God in me. They used to take me to Sunday school. They used to take me to church. Um, I learned to sing um, like crocodile songs and stuff when I was little. Because my sisters, 
Um, they saw a need for God. They had a love for God. And I'm glad that they did that. So I want to say thank you, Chuck. <laughs> so, I lived in this family-type atmosphere. What caused a change in my family? Because now I can say that everyone in my immediate family are Seventh-day Adventists. Um, my grandmother is a Seventh-day Adventist. And, um, and there's, there's seven of us. And what caused this change? And this is from a, a family that has no religion at all. What caused this change? Well, when I was 13, we came to America. We used to live in Japan, but that was in the military, I'd, I'd mentioned. And we moved back to the States. The move was very, very hard on my family, especially my parents. My mom especially lost all her gambling friends. She couldn't find a job. Yeah. I, I try not to make it too funny. Okay. She lost all her friends that she ran around and did things with, and she couldn't find a job. My, my parents' bills were more than their income, and the fight started to increase. My dad was blaming my mom for mismanaging the funds, and my mom didn't want to give up her costly lifestyle. My parents were on the verge of a divorce. They talked about it all the time. And that's, that's like, that stabs you when you're, you know, 13 years old, that your parents are fighting, but then the word, the D word comes up. You know, I had a lot of friends that had divorced, but I never thought it could happen to me. I remember several times where my mom would just run away. We couldn't find her for days. Uh, she'd be hiding in the woods and stuff. And it was just, she was just so stressed. She was just so stressed. She could not, you know, she, you know, the income split in half, but she just couldn't give up the things that had bound her. And right around the same time, my mother's grandmother died. And my mom was raised by my grand, or her grandmother, not her mother, because her mother had left her. And so she was the lady that had brought my mom up in the Adventist church. My mom was devastated. Her grandmother had raised her in the Adventist church, and my mom had made a promise to her that she would return someday to that church. But now it was too late. She had passed away. She went home to the Philippines to bury her grandmother. But when she came back, something was a little different about my mom. The first thing she, I remember her saying was, we're going to go to church this week. I was like, okay. My dad was like, huh, cool, anything that doesn't cost money, that's fine. You know? He responded by saying, okay, we'll go to that church down the road this next Sunday. She's like, no, 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 we're going on Saturday. You know, and I was just like, well, I thought my mom had been out of church so long, she forgot what day Christians with the church. My dad misunderstood my mom's intentions and told my mom, listen, if we go to church on Sunday real early, we can still get good seats. We don't have to go a day early. I mean, my dad, my dad jokes around about that, but it was a new thing for me. I thought, wow, this is weird, because the little church experience I had had was on Sunday, and that's the day Christians go to church, and what is the Saturday thing? I, I was like, okay, we're going to go to the church. It's just going to be empty. There's not going to be anybody there. So anyways, you know, my mom, you know, my dad is the leader of the family, but not really. <laughs> my mom, my mom, my mom has a huge influence, and I think that's the way it should be. Is that the house needs to have a strong, godly woman leading the house? Amen. Very true. She she keeps the she keeps the house moving. So one Saturday back in September of 1994, we got dressed up. I had like one pair of nice clothes. Put that on. We loaded our 1985 Toyota van and followed signs that pointed us to an Adventist church in Milton, Florida. To my surprise, there was actually many people it was packed on the wrong day. I couldn't swear. I mentioned my mom so much in this testimony because without her influence, I nor I nor nobody else in my family would be in this church today. Amen. A godly woman that not only prays for her family but stands up for what she knows is right. Even when her even when everyone, including her husband, her children, everyone thinks she's weird. 
that woman will see her children in heaven. You stand for the right. Many parents today think it's more important that their children are, are just in church. So they'll compromise a little on key issues of our church, maybe areas of music, or maybe Sabbath keeping, maybe entertainment or dress standards are seen as less important, just as long as our church is there on, our, our kids are there in church on Sabbath. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you aren't doing your kids a favor. By compromising what the church teaches, you're putting inconsistency into the church. You're just making it harder for them to accept the truth of God's word later in life. It's just making it harder for them. The compromises aren't leading them closer to Jesus. It's only allowing them to be able to embrace the world and the church at the same time. And I'm not sure. I, I, a, a Bible text come to, comes to my mind in James chapter 4, verse 4 that says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You can't marry the two together. The Bible says they're different. And Jesus himself, his own words, and I hope you don't get upset with me saying this. I mean, Jesus is saying it. So if you, if you have any problem with the things I'm saying, you're going to have to take it up with the God stairs. No servant, in Luke chapter 16, verse 33, it says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Over the course of the next few weeks, my family went through a metamorphosis. The pastor of that church was gracious enough to come over and give us Bible studies. And, you know, we had a Bible. I mean, it's, it's funny. Even when you're not a Christian, you have a Bible in your house. We had a Bible in our house all the time. We never read the thing, but it was there. And so it was kind of weird actually reading the thing. I just grew up thinking it was decoration. It was on the coffee table. And so you don't have to be a Christian to have a Bible. The pastor of the church was coming over and giving us Bible studies, and for the first time in my life, the Bible was actually starting to make sense to me. Someone could explain it to where I could look. You know, all the these and vows were, were, were coming together. I realized that all those stories in the Bible were actually true and not just fables, and that God had created everything I see around me in seven real, literal days. I saw the importance of the Sabbath and how it fits into last day events. I was convinced, and I wanted to be baptized. Thank you. My mom started cooking different foods. She started smiling more. And in fact, my parents stopped fighting, which was a huge blessing. Especially my, they stopped. Divorce was never brought up again. I was like, man, this church thing is great. The talks of divorce ceased, and my mom started waking us up early and bringing us together together in evening and morning work, um, family devotions. Didn't know what that was. We started. She 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 went off of her her knowledge of the past of of the hymns that she had remembered. She bought a hymn, and we started learning these hymns without any instruments. None of us played anything, but. We, uh, I'm amazed as, as I listen to the hymns now. My mom was pretty solid on the, the rhythm and the tune and stuff. <laughs> Over so many years, the Lord was definitely leading in her life. Every day we came together for worship. And then, what was really tough for my mom, it was a little tough for myself too. And um, when the pastor got to the Bible study on Christian standards, he showed that how. Now, you guys, I want to. There's a bunch of different Bible texts here, but if you'd like to turn with me, I'll, I'll say out the, the Bible text you can follow along. Genesis chapter 35. I just want to summarize. The Israelites made a golden calf with their jewelry, and when they repented, God commanded them to take off their earrings. Exodus 33, verse 3 through 6. As the children of Israel entered the promised land, they removed all their ornaments. Now I want everyone to turn here. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16 through 24. <clears throat> I'll turn there with you. Isaiah, right before Jeremiah. 
Isaiah chapter 3. And I want you to keep your finger on Isaiah chapter 3. Starting with verse, actually start with verse 18. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of the tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon, the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs, and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles and the wimples, on and on and on. What's going on here? The nation of Israel has fallen into apostasy. And one of the major signs of them falling into apostasy is that they're just decking themselves out. They've adorned themselves. And God's saying, before I can forgive you, you need to submit your heart. And an outward showing of your heart is what you're wearing on the outside. And I was like, this is coming. This is, this is, I never thought of it that way. Hosea 2.13. Could you turn there with me real quick? And this is just kind of sums it up in the Old Testament. And I just want to preface that I believe that the whole Bible is inspired, not just the New Testament. But the New Testament is pretty nice, too. Okay, Hosea is the first book after Daniel. Hosea chapter 2, verse 3. Lest I strip her naked and set her as the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness. Is that right? No, that's wrong. Sorry. Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. 2 verse 13. It says, And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with earrings and jewels, and she, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, says the Lord. Right there, God is saying, listen, you know, when you, when you put that stuff on, you're forgetting about me. It's a sign. It's something that happens on the outside. It's not the disease, but it's usually a symptom of something else. I wanted also to... If we can, we, let's go to the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. It says, Women dress modestly, decently, in suitable clothing, refraining from gold, pearls, expensive clothing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 2 through 5. Let your ornaments be of a meek and quiet spirit, not the outward adorning of gold. Revelation chapter... And, and then what really hit me, Revelation chapter 17, it describes this... this it, and then the Bible uses a woman to describe a church. and describes this woman... That is this false church that is attacking God's church is just covered with pearls and gold and jewelry and earrings and stuff. And then it contrasts that with a woman in Revelation chapter 12 that says she is clothed with the sun, the moon, the stars, and her character is meek and calmly, not shiny and flashy. I was like, wow, what's... I didn't know jewelry was such a big thing. I really didn't. I didn't see it. It just seemed such a, like a small thing. But the Bible, the Bible is very clear on it. And I'm sorry... I'm an Adventist, but I'm a Bible-believing Christian first. And if the Bible has something to say about something, I'm going to let it change my life. For me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Isaiah, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 3. I just wanted, I just wanted to just end it with Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1. It really caused me to think. Let's all turn there together real quick. Now, we just talked about how a woman represents a church in Bible prophecy. And that the man of that woman is usually represented as Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, In that day, speaking of the future, seven women, and we find seven churches. In other places, there's seven churches in Revelation, the first, first and third chapters. It says, Seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread. We will wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name, so you can take away our reproach. Does that sound familiar today, guys? I'm, it's just not easy saying this up here. I know people are probably cringing in their seats. I'm saying this, but this is what the Bible says. You know, I'm not going to, I'm sorry, I just, if I don't say it, the rocks will say it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, and so the, the pastor was just, 
he was just letting us have it. We're sitting there listening to this stuff. And I myself, when I was 13, 14 years old, I was, I wore jewelry. I was like, you know, the guy. I had, for two years, um, my mom had gotten me a ring, and I had worn it on my finger. And it was, a, it was something my mom had given me, you know. I mean, it was, you know, I, I say a lot of great things about my mom now, but she, she didn't buy me a lot of things growing up. She bought herself a lot of things. But that was the one thing that she had given me. And I was like, well, I'm going to keep this. This, is, this represents my mom, my relationship to me and my mom. But when the pastor was done, I realized that the Bible was crystal clear on jewelry. I realized that Jesus gave it up. He gave up this golden crown in heaven for a thorny crown. And that when I adorn myself, I take on the attitude of Satan, not Jesus. I realized that if Jesus could go without jewelry until his father crowned him again in glory in heaven, because that's, hey, I'm expecting there's going to be a crown in heaven, then we could too. It's just a short life compared to eternity. I looked down at my hands, I said a prayer, and I took off my ring. And I had been wearing it for a couple of years. And what was really amazing is my mom, my mom wore, I mean, there's, you know, there's some people wear jewelry and it, it, you can't really tell. But my mom, when she wore jewelry, you, told, you can tell she wore jewelry. She had, she had earrings, big ones, bracelets. I mean, it was just, it's just a thing that just shows off, listen, I was poor growing up, but now I've arrived. Okay. What was really amazing at the same time, my mom took off all her earrings, her bracelets, and what was the real shocker, she even took off her engagement ring and her wedding band. She later told, I'm sorry, she later sold her jewelry and gave the money to the church. Now that's being a good steward with God's money. It may seem like a big sacrifice, but it was so nice to do something for Jesus after he had died for me. I knew that there wasn't anything sinful about the jewels themselves, but I knew that wearing them here on earth and putting them on myself goes against everything the Bible teaches about how a Christian should live and act. The Bible always parallels self-adornment with a backslidden spiritual life. And I just, you know, I just, I just want to, I guess I've already dug my, my ditch. I might as well hammer it home. Um, this is from um, the Spirit of Prophecy. And just, just listen to this and see, how, see, if, see if you can apply this to our day today. The struggles that are going on in our church today, they're not new. They're old. Jewelry didn't come around in the last couple hundred years. They've been wearing jewelry since the Egyptians were making pyramids. A sister, who had spent se- a sister who had spent some weeks in one of our institutions in Battle Creek said that she felt much disappointed in what she saw and heard there. She had thought to find a people far in advance of the younger churches, both in knowledge and of truth and in a religious experience. Here she hoped to gain much instruction, which, which she could carry back to her sisters in the faith in a distant state. But she was surprised and pained at the lightness, the worldliness, and the lack of devotion which she met on every hand. The stuff cuts. Before accepting the truth, she had followed the fashions of the world in her dress and had worn costly jewelry and other ornaments. But upon deciding to obey the word of God, she felt that it was its, the teachings required her to lay aside all extravagant and su- su- super, I'm sorry. I was having problems with this word earlier. Uh, superfluous, superfluous adorning. She was taught that the Seventh-day Adventists did not wear jewelry, gold, silver, or precious stones, and that they do not conform to worldly fashions and dress. When she saw among those who professed the faith such a wide departure from the Bible simplicity, have mercy. She felt bewildered. Had they not the same Bible she had been studying, and to which she had endeavored to conform her life? Had her past experience been mere fanaticism? Had she misinterpreted what the words of the, do- the, words of the Bible said, the words of the apostle? 
Miss D, who was a lady that was taking care of her, I guess you could say she was like our nurse or doctor, a lady accompanying a a company, a, occupying a position in the institution, was visiting was visiting the, the sister's room one day when the latter sister took the trunk of gold with necklaces and chains and said she wished to dispose of this jewelry and put the proceeds to the Lord's treasury into the church. The other lady said, why are you going to sell it? If it was mine, I'd just wear it. Why? Why? replied the sister. When I received the truth, I was taught that all these things must be laid. I just, I can't, I don't want to read the whole thing because we don't have that much time, but the last part, it talks about conforming to the world or conforming to Christ. God's word is plain. Its teachings cannot be mistaken. Shall we obey it just as he has given it to us, or shall we seek to find how far we can digress and yet still be saved? Lord, I want to get to the pearly gates, but not all the way. Was that all? Would that all connected with our institutions would receive and follow the divine light and thus be enabled to transmit light to those who walk in darkness. This is my testimony. This is my family's testimony. But I hope that people in the audience today can, can see how God works and see that it, it's right there. It's plain. When I was back to, back to, back to the little diversion there, but back to the testimony, it says, I saw that everything the pastor was teaching carried straight from the Word of God. My mom, my dad, my brothers, and I accepted everything. We were baptized in God's church. We joined the church and dedicated our, dedicated our lives to God's end-time movement. My dad quit the Marine Corps. He, and it was hard for him. Quit the Marine Corps. He couldn't see himself shooting somebody. And later received a call to the ministry. The first three people my dad converted to the Adventist faith were my two older sisters who had, who had already had their own families and my grandmother. All within just a few months. The Lord was blessing. God was blessing. And I wish I could say that's the end of my testimony and go home. But I fell away. Seeing all this, the work of the Holy Spirit working in my life, I still fell away. Well, I decided, when I was 14, I had, I had already gone through one year of public high school, and we had just moved, it was a new school to me. I decided I wanted to go to academy. I wanted to be around people that believed exactly what I believed. I wanted to be around people that studied the Bible as well as I, was, I had seen it to study the Bible. It was tough enough being the new kid in a public high school with over 2,000 students. But now, I had all these different beliefs that made me stand out. When you're 14 years old and you're at a public high school with 2,000 kids, you don't want to stand out. You want to blend in. I did, I did make some friends, though. I became known as the kid that gave away his pepperoni. And people liked sitting around me in the cafeteria. Hey, Shaz, yeah, give me your pepperoni. So, so I did make some friends. But I needed to be surrounded by kids my age that took the Bible seriously. So my parents agreed to make the fine. I mean, they were already hurting financially, but they went on faith that God would bless, and they sent me, and they paid the extra money to send me to academy. What I found there, what I found there, you know, I don't want this to be a negative sermon. I want this to be a positive sermon. So we got to go through some negatives first and to see how God can save. What I found there was shock, it shocked me. Many of the kids there listened to the same music I had just given up. Some smoked weed, not the cigarettes, weed. And I hope I'm not. I hope I'm ruining it for the rest of them so they understand. So your parents know that that just because you send your kids off to the academy, don't, don't, don't pretend like everything's okay. Keep watching your kids. Keep asking them questions. And there were even guys, many drank alcohol, me included, and there were even guys that would sneak their girlfriends into their rooms at night or during the day when they had what, uh, faculty meetings. Everybody is in the faculty room. 
We were in charge of the basically the whole school. Bring your girlfriend up to your room. It, it, I couldn't believe it, and soon enough I found myself doing the same stuff that had initially shocked me. I was very impressionable and I wanted to fit in and was quite the risk taker. Those are bad combinations. During my three years in academy, now get this, see if you can see me doing this. I was suspended twice for a week. I was put on social, you guys know what social is? I was put on social three different times with three different girls and I ended up being expelled. I was expelled from school. And a couple months before I graduated, they let me back in my last year. I, I sneaked off campus with my friends. I flipped my car over. My teachers couldn't understand it. I seemed like such a well-behaved kid in the classroom, but trouble seemed to follow me everywhere else. Luckily, I graduated to my parents' relief. College, it wasn't any better. Of course, I went through the regular spiritual coasters that most Adventist youth go through. I would give my heart to Jesus at week of prayer, and then the next week I would take my heart back. As I look back now, when my spiritual walk relied more on what the message and the messenger was saying and not what the Holy Spirit and the Bible were saying, my spirituality would decline very quickly. You need to study the Bible. You need to study the Bible and not just read the Bible to use it to fall asleep at night. You need to study the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit teaches you what the Bible says. And you can easily forget what somebody else... I don't know. I remember that um, teachers once saying that if you hear something, you only retain like so much of it. If you see something, you, you retain much more. And then if you teach it, you retain like almost everything. Apply that to the Bible as well. I think God deserves it. Anyone can read the Bible. James 2.19 says that devils also believe and tremble. But very few people will accept its plain messages and allow God to apply it to their lives. The difference between the devil and a true Christian is that while both believe in God, one also accepts his word and follows it. Amen. When I fell away from my faith, it didn't happen overnight. To, to quote a, a pretty prominent preacher, my spiritual decline was like a tire that slowly leaks out, uh, leaks out its air. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not a blowout. But when it, the air is all gone, it's hard to move. It's really hard to move. As I look back on my experience, I noticed that there were some key warnings that were indicators of my backsliding condition. I just want to read through them real quick. And, and I just, just hear the things that are, these are just, these are key. I started surrounding myself with people that didn't believe the same way I did. Nominal Christians. I stopped praying at morning and at night. The dust collected on my Bible. I started skipping church to sleep, to go hiking, which are all fine. You know, you need rest. You need to be outdoors. But you need to be on church. You need to be in church on Sabbath. You know, God calls us to worship Him. Okay? The GOP was more important than the GOD to me, which is... Shouldn't be. As time slowly progressed, the small compromises started to evolve into bigger and bigger concessions until I was living in downright apostasy. I lost interest in anything that had anything to do with the Adventist church. You guys are legalists. I don't want to hear it. I started eating out on Sabbath. I started going shopping on Sabbath. I eventually was working on Sabbath. Then I eventually, then I saw nothing. Well, there's nothing wrong with taking a couple puffs of marijuana. It makes me feel good. God wants us to feel good, right? I couldn't see anything wrong with a glass of wine every now and then. You know, the pressures of, of college. I didn't see anything wrong with eating pepperoni anymore. It's just, man, why would God keep away such great-tasting meat? It just goes against everything he says. And I couldn't see anything wrong with sleeping with my girlfriend. It just felt so nice. What's the matter with that? God's going to keep me away. <sighs> Have mercy. See how far? It doesn't start with 
sleeping with your girlfriend. It starts with the small things, and it just it, it's it's an it's a slippery slope. To me, God was this big heart in the sky that was smiling on me no matter what I did. You know, that's not God. Because I had lost my connection with the Lord, I started to see my condition as okay, and I rationalized that God's love was bigger than my faults, which is true. But none of this, and I said to myself, none of these decisions I'm making are salvational issues. Do you ever, you ever hear anybody say that? It's not a salvational issue. Not a salvational issue. God wouldn't keep me out of heaven for buying gas on Sabbath. That's so legalistic. But what many of us don't realize is that you cannot have the signs of a backslidden state without having a backslidden heart and a backslidden salvation. I want to repeat that one more time. This is key. You cannot have the signs of a backslidden state without having a backslidden heart and a backslidden salvation. We as humans have the tendency to create God in the image of ourselves. We accept the things of the Bible that conflict with our own, that don't conflict with our own thinking, but then rationalize the things that challenge us. We start to say things like, you know, let's see if this applies. My pastor says it's okay. Everyone else is doing it. It's the custom now. We live in a more enlightened age, more than the Bible writers did. They needed all those rules. All I need is grace. If you have caught yourself saying those words, then I advise you, get on your knees and pray. Get on your knees and pray. Brothers and sisters, that is the response of a Christian that is sleeping. There is a prophecy in Revelation chapter 3 that describes that this would be the attitude of our church in the end times. So don't be surprised to expect the church acting this way. The Bible says it would be this way. If you turn to Revelation chapter 3 verse 15, Revelation chapter 3 verse 15, it speaks of this church called Laodicea. And I just want to read 15 through 17. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. Speaking of the church of Laodicea, this, this last church right before Jesus comes back. I know thy works, and that thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish that thou were cold or hot. So when because so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew, I will vomit thee out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I am increased with goods, I have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the condition of the church. The struggle of the Christian church in the first world today is not, am I going to get persecuted by Muslims? Am I going to be killed by the Romans at the stake? Am I, do I have to worry about the food I'm going to eat for dinner? It's not. So the, the struggle of the church is that we think we're okay on our own. But according to the Bible, we are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That goes against everything that the world's telling us. Amen. And we cannot, we cannot change if we stay in a state of denial. I never went searching for a Savior until I realized how far away from God I'd strayed. You just, I mean, we learned this in psychology. You know, you, you, don't, you don't see, if you don't see a need for change, you're not going to change. Unless somebody does it for you. It's dangerous being lukewarm because you think you're okay. At least if you're cold, you know you need to change. I need to tell you that there's, there's no such thing as standing still when it comes to being a Christian. You have to keep moving. You have to keep following God to clean your mind, to change your thoughts, to change your focus. Myself included. I'm in this group. There are only two options. Have you heard of this, this book called The Great Controversy? There are only two options in The Great Controversy, up and down. If you're not striving to look more like Jesus, if you're not allowing Jesus to clean the iniquities of your heart, if you're not holding, if you are holding on to cherished sins, then Satan has just added another victory to his scoreboard. Earth is not our home. 
Amen? Earth is not our home. Let's not get comfortable here. And we shouldn't be getting comfortable. I know it must be hard going up thinking God would be coming soon. He's going to be here in five years. Oh, he's going to be here in ten years. You know, if you grow up in that, that environment and year after year the world goes on and Jesus doesn't return, I, mean, I, can, I can just imagine, you know, I have the benefit of not being an Adventist for so long. For me, God will soon return, and I, I believe many people believe that. But you know what? God has prepared us for this, for this time of waiting. He told us this was going to happen. Let's turn it to our Bibles. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Let's see what Jesus says. Let's start with verse 48. Actually, I want to read verse 42 first. It says, Watch therefore, for you know not when, you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Skipping down to 48. Speaking of the wise and evil servant. It says, But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Jesus said this was going to happen, guys. Let's wake up. And if you go to read the next chapter, it talks about these ten virgins. And there, not half the virgins were sleeping. How many of the virgins were sleeping? All the virgins were sleeping. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. And I just want to, you know, I'm not up here thinking that I'm any better than anybody else. The Lord is speaking to me as I preach this. I don't, this, is, this is something that I need to hear myself. The Lord has given us the information we need, and we need, not to, we need to stay true to Him, even when the world is mocking us. I know some of you may be thinking, oh, I've heard this all before. Well, examine your thoughts, guys, and ask yourself, am I the wise servant? Am I truly waiting for the Lord to come? Am I living my life as if God would come back tomorrow? Or am I the wicked servant? You know what? They've been saying he's going he's to come for years now, and it's not going to happen. Put the trumpet down, you know. They've been saying that for years. Anyway, it's another diversion from my story, but I just wanted to make that point. I want to get back to my story. Well, now that I had fallen away, how did I get back to the Lord? I was down there, guys. I was down there. And trust me, I didn't think I was down there when I was down there, but now I know I was down there. I believe the main key was that my parents never stopped praying for me. If I see, see people that are parents or are going to be parents, don't stop praying for your kids. Really, I'm so thankful my mom, you know, when my mom used to call me up and say, I'm praying for you, I hated it. You know, it's like, I don't need any prayer, leave me alone, you know. But now I'm like, I, I, as much as opportunity as I can, I'm like, Mom, thank you so much. Because someday, that person is going to thank you. There's going to be people in heaven that, man, think about Paul, think about Stephen. Paul is, Stephen is going to see Paul, you know. Stephen was praying for Paul, and and, and many people are in the church because of the witness that Paul has given. Don't stop praying for people. It makes a difference. Amen. Let the power of God be real, not of none effect. I want to share with you a couple of things that, I, that led me back to where I am today. More positive things. A friend of mine has, number one, a friend of mine himself was just returning to a relationship with the Lord. And he had given me a couple books to read. If you recognize these books, I don't want to explain. But um, The Lucifer Diary, Omega 2, A Trip into the Supernatural. These books awakened my interest in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. It allowed me to see, hey, maybe the world I see around me isn't what's all that's there. 
Maybe there truly is a Satan. Maybe there truly is a God. Number two, I had friends that cared enough to share their concerns with my decisions. You know, we all have friends that keep their comments to themselves, even though somebody I might be following. There was, I had some friends, and sometimes our family don't say it, but I had some friends that put our relationship on the line, were willing to lose friendship with me to say, hey, Jason, you know, I'm concerned about the decision you're making. We need true, that's true friendship, and we need some true friends. We need real friends. Pastors at churches, number three. This might, I don't want this to be controversial. No names. Pastors at churches I attended started preaching that. Now, just, you know, I mean, take this, you know, see if this can apply to your life. Pastors, and they're not immune. They're humans too, okay? And we need to be praying for our pastors as well. Pastors at the churches I, I attended started preaching that. It's okay to buy things on Sabbath from the pulpit. Go out to eat on Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with alcohol. Jesus drank wine. It's okay to work on Sabbath. We can't take the Bible literally. Maybe evolution is a better way to explain things. I was shocked. Several of these ideas I had added to my own lifestyle, but never would I expect to go up and start preaching to everybody else that this was right. I'd always thought that my ideas were in direct conflict with the express will of God, but now I was hearing sermons that, I don't know, they didn't even itch my ears. They, they, they made me feel comfortable. I was hearing sermons that didn't challenge me anymore. With the life I was living, in the world we live in, we need to be challenged. Anything that comes from the Bible should challenge us. You're never going to be perfect, okay? It's, it's, I'm, I'm, listen, we are not perfect. I want somebody to raise their hand right now if they think they're perfect. Then if you read the Bible, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't cause you to want to change or see something in your life, then you're just basically saying, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. I need nothing. With the life I was living, any chapter from the Bible could have challenged my current situation. So, I was living a bad life. I, was, I used to hear sermons that caused me to make, make me feel guilty about what I was doing. But now I was hearing sermons that said, hey, keep doing what you're doing. God's love. You can do what you want. Man, I was like, okay, these are, these are two different things, okay? Both say God's love, but one says the other. One's saying something else. So I was like, I need to read the Bible for myself. I need to see what it says. So I started reading the Bible for myself. The Bible was so clear, but I didn't want to give up my habits. Finally, my mother confronted me with a sin that I had never surrendered to God. We all have hidden sins, cherished sins, I believe. And that sin, I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what my sin was. You know, Most of us just say we had a sin. But I want to tell you what it is because hopefully maybe somebody, maybe somebody else is struggling with this. And maybe somebody else, you know, needs to hear this. Mine was the lust of the flesh. It's probably the biggest sin that many of us guys have to deal with. Guys, it's hard. I mean, marriage does not immunize you against looking at that nice-looking girl down the street. Somebody's wearing some tight clothes, and you just have to look real quick. Oh, just sanctified glance. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the thing is, that is the biggest, you know, girls don't have to deal with it as much. You know, guys, we have this problem. It's the lust of the flesh. And girls, I, don't, I want to include you as well. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying this applies to everybody, but you have to fight the temptation because I know that girls, their lust isn't the lust of the flesh, but it's the, it's the lust of the lust of the flesh. They like, they like being looked at. They like being seen. They like the attention. I don't know. It's, correct me if I'm wrong. Stand up if I'm preaching heresy. But, um, well, anyways, back to my mom. 
She told me that the Lord had impressed her that my girlfriend and I were practicing an ungodly relationship. How did you know that? How did moms know these things? Because she was praying. I had given everything else up that I knew was contrary to the word of God, but this was my one cherished sin. Lord, not this. We're going to get married anyway. I didn't give it up, but it caused me to think. Now, I'm going to relate to you a story. Now, this is true. Okay, I didn't make this up. This is stuff that actually happened to me. So I want you to just, just imagine this, okay? Actually, if I could just, could, could everyone just close their eyes? I just want you to close your eyes and just imagine this happening to you. Later that night, after I got off the phone with my mom, I was sleeping. I had a dream. The dream was of this big building with no exit, no way out. I kept trying to find an exit, but there was no exit. Then I felt this presence behind me. The room started to get dark, and the hallway started to grow darker. I looked back, and I saw this figure, and it scared me. And I realized that it was a demon. It was peeking out from behind the wall, and it was pulling me closer to him. He started to walk closer to me, and somehow I knew it was Satan himself. I couldn't move. I wanted to... I wanted to wake up. Imagine yourself in this dream, and you want to get out of it, but you can't, and you feel like you're stuck. I knew I was dreaming, so I tried to wake up. Nothing happened, so I started calling out for Jesus in my dream. Jesus, Jesus, my mouth wouldn't open. I started shouting, get thee behind me, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, when all of a sudden I was sitting upright in my bed, pitch black room, sweating, screaming out the words as if I was still in the dream. It scared me, whatever you want to add to that. I was so scared. When I realized that I had finally gotten, out, gotten away from that demon and out of that dream, I jumped off my bed and started praying. I prayed for a long time, guys. It scared me. And whatever, you know, I think, I think the Lord now, because I needed to be shaken up, you know. Maybe the sermon for some of you guys is causing you to be shaken up. It's not, it's not, you know, we need to be shaken up every once in a while. Amen. The next evening at Restoration 2004, this isn't the dream anymore. The next evening at Restoration 2004, Pastor David Ashrick made an appeal. He asked, is there anyone in the audience that was holding on to a cherished sin? He didn't even say it. He didn't point to me. You should bring it to the throne of grace. You should bring it before the Lamb of God, and he'll take it from you. I felt like I was the only one in the audience that answered the appeal to follow Jesus all the way. Has that ever happened to anybody? You felt like he was talking right to you. Man, I need to... Be, be a little more careful about the things I say. It was a hard struggle. I'm not going to say it was easy. It was hard. It was a very hard struggle, giving up that sin. But God gave me the victory. And every day of triumph made the next day a little easier. Yeah. You know, you've got to put one foot in front of the other if you're going to run a marathon. And now, because I allowed God to have total control over my life, I truly have peace. And I can give you this testimony, guys. I want to conclude. I'm sorry. I don't want to go over. I know you guys are probably hungry. Let's finish up the word. I want to conclude with some things that I've learned from the Bible that are essential for a Christian to know if they are to stay close to Jesus. And you can write these down if you're taking notes, but um, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. Jer Number one, I cannot trust myself. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 14.12, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the ways thereof is, it leads to destruction. Number two, sin is a dangerous addiction. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says that my sins, when I commit them, it's almost as if I am crucifying Christ again. You know, if you knew that something that you did was causing somebody to die, you'd stop. Right? How much more of the Lord of the universe? 
Number three, it's not good enough to know just just know truth. James 1.22 says we're called to be hearers and doers of the word, not just hearers. James 4.17 says once we know that truth, if we know it and then we don't we don't follow it, that's sin. That's what sin is. There's a good definition for you. To know to do the truth and not do it. Number four, I need a Savior who can do the impossible. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And I think something that's pretty impossible is for us to give up our lives, to turn away. That's impossible, but Jesus can do it for you. Number five, yeah, please. You know, say amen. These are powerful. You should be saying amen. The Bible and our beliefs are not bound by culture. Amen? 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 Yeah. That's right. Matthew 15, it says, you have, you have made the traditions of men into your doctrines and neglected the commandments of God. You think God is bound by culture? That God comes down, sends his son from on high and says, well, what do you guys think? What should I put in my Bible? You know, that doesn't, that's not how it works. You know, it's, God is not bound by our culture. He works through our culture, but he's not bound to it. Number six, victory over sin is not just a possibility. It's a necessity. Hebrews 10, verse 26, it says, If we continue in sin after knowing the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for our sins. That is not me saying this, guys. This isn't is the Bible. If you don't like what it says, what are you going to do, burn it? It's right there. I'm almost done. Home stretch. Do you now? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping there's going to be amens here. Do you believe the Lord is coming soon? Amen. Do you believe what it says right there? Do you believe the Lord is coming? Soon? Amen. Do you believe that it's, His coming is sooner today than yesterday? Amen. Amen. How about ten years ago? Is it sooner today? Yes. Does it make any sense to now start deconstructing the plain messages of the Bible, knowing that God is coming? That that is coming is closer than ever before. My brothers and sisters, primitive godliness primitive godliness. It's time to wake up. It's time to stop playing church. We are obsessed with getting to heaven, and we forget that being a Christian is not about getting to heaven. That's the reward. The goal is to follow Jesus. Getting to heaven is the reward, not the goal of a Christian. The goal is to be like Jesus. Let's stop, be, let's stop being critical Christians. Let's start being radical disciples. I know radical is a radical term, but let's, let's stop questioning. I mean, if God wants us to bring questions, but when we see the truth, there's a time to leave the questions aside and say, you know what, this is what a critical Christian says. God doesn't really mean that, a radical disciple would say. Thus saith the Lord, end of discussion. A critical Christian says, oh, that's not a salvational issue. A radical disciple says, I love God, anything to please him. The critical Christian says, none of us are perfect. The radical disciple says, God is changing my character every day. The critical Christian says, the Bible is too saturated by culture to be taken literally. The radical disciple says, the Bible changes my culture. So what does it truly mean to be a Christian? God is love. Amen. God is love. Amen. Amen. And that is the most important thing. That is the most important theme of the Bible. God is love. That's the whole reason why we get second chances, because God loves us. But don't rip out the rest of the Bible that talks about how God expects something from us. Okay? It's not righteousness by works. He put it there for a reason, guys. Don't rip that out of the Bible. We are called to be co-laborers with Christ. Not writing, enjoying ourselves in a coach as he pulls us along through the journey of life. In a world of cars, microwaves, televisions, and instant everything, we want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be easy, dumbed down, and instant. But Jesus never said that following him was going to be easy. Now I want you guys to turn. There's a couple more verses I want to turn with me in your Bibles. 
to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 28. The Dr. Luke says, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the Dr. Luke's not saying, the Dr. Luke writes, Jesus is saying, if any man come, this is verse 26 to 28, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and yes, hate even his own life as well, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his own cross, his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower, which of you intending to be a Christian, sits not down and counts the cost? Count the cost, guys. Another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says, I'll give you a couple, couple seconds here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And Paul states, Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Guys, the Bible has let us know. It's, God is not, called, he's not saving us from the world. He's saving us in the world. Okay? You know, and, and you know, so some of us may be, be going through different trials that other people don't, you know. God is allowing things to happen in our lives that they can be, they can be a witness to other people. You know, imagine being one of those people in the Colosseum being torn apart by lions. Do you think God is fair for that? Do you know how many people came to the church because of that witness? You know, God, God cares about our first death, but he's more concerned about the second death, right? It's more important. You know, we worry so much about our lives here on earth, you know? But it's almost like we don't care about the lives, the life to follow, whether or not we're going to, we're, we're living, we're living up to what God wants, you know, is, is in his Bible. You know, if someone was to put, you know, just a, 1% of cyanide in a glass of water. You would never drink it. You know, you love your life too much. But maybe just an inch of cyanide in my theology. That's okay. All this may sound discouraging, but we must remember we follow a risen Savior who already prayed, paid the price for our transgressions. Jesus promises to save us. But to save us from what? Ourselves, guys. This world and the grip that sin has on our lives. I want to end with a text that gives us the hope that no matter the difficulty, Jesus has paid it all. Please turn with me to John chapter 16, verse 33. John chapter 16, verse 33. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, Jesus promises, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. A preacher, I heard a preacher once say that the purpose of a sermon is not to, to be flashy and, and see how many texts you can quote, but the purpose of a sermon from week to week is to appeal to the hearts, to allow people to make a decision for Christ. That's the purpose. We could, I, I could preach the worst sermon in the world, okay, but, but God can speak through me, and the Holy Spirit may be working on somebody out there right now. Now, if you want the Lord to overcome like He promises He can, if you want to give God the power, take the power out of your hands and put it back into God's hands, then I would invite you to reach for your hymnal. Hymn number 527. Jesus paid it all. If I could get... 
Maybe a couple of the people that were singing to lead out for us. Maybe, thank you, Carrie. Maybe just, yeah, Carrie's just fine. Yeah, come on up. Yeah, come on up here. Hymn number 527. Why don't we stand? If you, so before you stand, before you stand, if you really want God to live in your life, if you truly want to have, if you really want Him to overcome in your life, then stand.
to, they want to put themselves to death so that they can find themselves hidden in Christ. Then I invite you in this last verse, just come forward. Who cares what people think? The world will think, the world will think badly of you. The world will persecute you. But Jesus, there are angels in heaven when we make decisions for the Lord. Fourth verse. Be with us now as we 
as we continue in your Sabbath, Lord. Help us to keep it holy. Help us to keep serving the holy God. I pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.